Hi everyone, this is Jennifer Harvey Salam from Intergifted, back with a new episode of our Conversations on Gifted Trauma podcast. Today I'm happy to invite Christiane Wells into a conversation with me on the topic of giftedness, positive disintegration, and mental health. Chris is a psychologist who has dedicated her research and work to the origins and evolution of Dabrowski's theory of positive disintegration and its implications for mental health. Formerly the director of qualitative research at the Institute for the Study of Advanced Development in the U.S., Chris has recently stepped out on her own as the founder and president of the Dabrowski Center, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study and dissemination of Dabrowski's theory of positive disintegration. Her Positive Disintegration podcast, co-hosted with Emma Nicholson, has quickly become a favorite in giftedness and personal development circles. Alongside all of these roles, Chris has a private practice where she supports gifted, twice exceptional, and overexcitable clients to find their way towards self-understanding and feeling whole. She's a prolific writer and has authored books on addiction, mental health, and recovery. From an introduction like this, you probably wouldn't expect to hear that Chris spent her childhood and early adulthood believing she had multiple mental illnesses and being told as much by mainstream psychiatry. In spite of being tested early on as profoundly gifted, she believed she was broken, went through serious turmoil, felt suicidal, was hospitalized multiple times, and spent 13 years on disability, believing she was unable to work. An encounter with Dabrowski's theory of positive disintegration changed all of that. Through the lens of overexcitabilities and higher personality development, Chris came to understand that mainstream psychiatry and what we often diagnose as, quote, mental illness is missing the mark in so many ways. Today, she shares with us the journey she went from feeling and seeing herself and her life as broken to understanding how her uniqueness was calling her onto a different, but definitely not broken, path. Her story is inspiring and motivating, and I'm happy that she gets to share it with you all here on our podcast. A couple important notes to listeners before you get started listening. First, if you don't know what the theory of positive disintegration is, then Google it, or you could go to the Intergifted website where you'll find a good explainer article that I've written on the blog. It's called Living with Intensity, Giftedness, and Self-Actualization. We use a fair amount of technical language from the theory in this episode, so you probably won't know what we're talking about unless you're already familiar with the theory or you've done a little research ahead of time. Secondly, we're talking about some difficult topics in this episode. Yes, of course, it's a podcast on trauma, so we're always discussing difficult topics. But today we talk about suicide attempts, psychiatric hospitalization, addiction, and violence. If these are topics you're not currently able to engage with in a safe manner, then I can recommend setting this episode aside for now until you feel you're in a safer space to engage with these details of Chris's story. I want to thank Chris for this open-hearted conversation and for the work she does supporting, inspiring, and advocating for all of us who have struggled to make sense of what the world tells us is, quote, wrong with us, and to find empowering ways to recontextualize these aspects of ourselves and our unique path. I also want to thank Dabrowski himself, though he's no longer with us, for providing light and hope to those of us with overexcitabilities. Thank you as well to Chris's mentor, Michael Piakowski, and all those who have dedicated their lives and efforts to carrying forward the legacy of Dabrowski's work in meaningful ways. I hope you'll enjoy listening to this episode, and thanks for joining us. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jen. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. I'm really glad to have you here. Today, we're going to be talking about, as I said in the introduction, giftedness, positive disintegration, and mental health. One of the reasons I wanted to bring you on the podcast specifically is you have a very compelling and deep story, very complex 
lifelong story about how mental health was a challenge, how you realized that a lot of what was going on for you was related to overexcitabilities and was leading you through a positive disintegration and how a lot of it also had to do with your giftedness and how all of those things led to misdiagnosis and inappropriate treatment and inappropriate guidance and how you had to find your way through. So you have a really powerful story to tell that a lot of us can see ourselves in, hear ourselves in. And that's really inspiring for those of us who have struggled with these things. Also, now you're a therapist, social worker for gifted people and for people who struggle with overexcitabilities and channeling them in a healthy, productive way. You know, you're not just a, let's say, user of the system, so to speak, but you are one of the people creating the system. So for practitioners that are listening, I think it's going to be an interesting conversation for them as well, because we'll be speaking on these two sides of it, you know, being the patient, so to speak, and then being the healer. So we'll just get started with your story. Where did it all begin for you? Oh, where did it all begin? Well, when I was thinking about what to say about that, I mean, it occurred to me that I think one important aspect of my story that I haven't said enough about is that I had very young parents. My parents were teenagers when I was born. My father had just turned 16, like three months earlier. So they were very young and they both had their own trauma histories by the time I was born. My father spent time in his childhood in Philadelphia, Mississippi. He actually moved there the year that the three civil rights workers were murdered in that town. It's in the film, Mississippi Burning. And so he had been from Connecticut, moved to Mississippi that year. And they, like my family was Catholic. He was bullied and tormented by kids. Then he ended up moving back to Connecticut and within a couple of years had a child. So I was born into <laughs> this family of trauma. That's where my story begins. And I realize now that I work with other people clinically that this is important, that trauma is intergenerational and we can't diminish that or ignore it. So it seems important to start there. My gifted trauma is also related to that. You know, I was like reading by the time I was three. I have kind of in some ways a typical PG story, which I only realize now that I work in the gifted field. I would not have said that 10 years ago or even five years ago, maybe. You know, there's just a certain way of being that, you know, you learn how to do things like read very young, way younger than your age peers. And by the time you're in school, you're having a very different experience of reality than the other children. Mm -hmm. And adults may or may not pick up on that. I mean, it starts in preschool for me in my story, where I'm either seen or I'm not seen, or I'm seen as a blessing or mm -hmm. a pain in the ass, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and treated accordingly. So it was in fourth grade that I had a teacher who realized that I was gifted and nominated me for testing. And one interesting thing about my story is that like I started in gifted programming and went through all that testing without anyone even saying anything to my parents. Apparently I came home at one point and told my mother about something that happened in my gifted class. She was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and so there, you know, there are all these disconnects in my childhood around my giftedness and who knows what the people at my school were thinking about my young parents and maybe their lack of like involvement in my life compared to older parents with children. I always had like 
way the youngest parents compared to my friends. And everyone loved my parents, wanted to come over to my house. And I definitely had a a different experience than my friends when I was growing up. Although I have to say, like when I was in elementary school, I'm not sure that I really had many friends. Mm. I started making friends in middle school, but when I was in elementary school, I was a really weird kid. I had my own special interests. I was really into elevators. My father was an elevator mechanic and you know, I would bring like his modules in. And that's actually one of the things that my teacher noticed in fourth grade. Like I would bring in the stuff he was learning in his elevator mechanic school, you know, from their union. And, and I also like tried to organize my classmates because, you know, he was in a union. So I would try to like organize my classmates and try to like get better conditions for us in our classroom <laughs> and stuff. That's what I was like as a kid. I felt like a freak when I was growing up. Like it, there was such a divide between me and the other kids and even me and the other gifted kids that I lived a lot in my imagination. And so when I was eight years old, my mind like spontaneously created this other experience of reality that was in my imagination. And I started living this parallel dual reality where I was like existing in concrete, like tangible reality with this imaginal experience that kind of happened at the same time and was almost in some ways like superimposed onto my regular reality. And all of what I've just described is, is tough for people to wrap their heads around and digest. And, and yet it's really a critical piece of my, my story. So, well, and I know that there are some people who get it immediately because I've heard from many people I've worked with over the years and I have my own version of it as well. Right. So I know that some people get it and that's why I continue to talk about it when I do like a podcast, because I know that it's important for people to understand that if this is you and you're hearing this right now, and this is familiar, it's not something that's wrong with you. But I thought it was, I don't even think it was like in my conscious awareness until I was like 19 years old, to be honest, Mm -hmm. because it just became a part of like the fabric of my existence. And on the other hand, it, it created a lot of problems for me because in that other world in my head, I went to such dark places, like along with that was kind of an obsession with death. And interestingly now, because I studied Dabrowski's theory, like he writes a lot about that, how some people from their earliest childhoods are obsessed with death. And he doesn't talk about it in a bad way, like it's something wrong with you, but that is just an interesting phenomenon and it colors their existence. And, and so that's how it was for me. I was really obsessed with death and suicide at like the age of eight. And so by the time I was in middle school, I had gone from thinking about death to being kind of suicidal and also obsessed with drugs. Like these were my special interests when I was a child, death and drugs and addiction. And so by the time I was like 12, I had already tried smoking pot, like I was already trying to use drugs and I sought them out all the time. By the time I was in middle school, I like carried a knife in my pocket and I was ready to stab somebody. I was very troubled. I mean, I don't know what other word to use for it. I was very troubled and it was because I was so in my imagination, like these things were playing out for me. I had this whole other life there. I was more mature there and I had more autonomy there than I had in my real life. 
but that like bled over into my real life. Mm -hmm. So this summer, I, you know, this summer now in 2022, I was a facilitator at UNASA, which is a camp for gifted kids. And during my elder chat, because, you know, I got to spend like 20 minutes talking with the kids one day about my history. And of course, I don't go into these deep, dark details with them. <laughs> but I told them a bit, just a brief story about how when I was in middle school, my gifted teacher was so disappointed with me because I started middle school. They saw my test scores, like my IQ tests, and it was so fraught for me as a kid because I had such a high IQ. And so, you know, teachers would talk about me like I was some genius, you know, but I wasn't. I was just a kid. And obviously I had these weird obsessions. And so my giftedness didn't necessarily play out in the classroom the way that people thought it would. And so in middle school, I had this gifted teacher who was so like, she was so disappointed in me because she expected this genius. And instead she got me who wore like black heavy metal t-shirts every day with my black jeans and was like, I was very angry. I was a really angry kid. Um, I swore a lot. I told teachers, you know, to go I don't know what your language policy you is, but to go F them, to go fuck themselves. You know, I was very aggressive because like in elementary school, kids had tried to bully me. I was a fight responder. And so if you tried to bully me when I was a kid, I would punch you. I mean, I was so aggressive because I found that that was the way to deal with it. And part of it was that's what I learned from my father who had been bullied as a kid. Like if somebody fucks with you, go at them like go for the throat. <laughs> and yeah. so that's what I did. And that's what I like carried into middle school and high school and then adulthood. Well, by the time I was an adult and I was in mental health treatment with that anger, I mean, you can only imagine like the diagnoses that I saw from that <laughs> as a woman, go, especially. Did, as an adult, did you go willingly? I went willingly at first, but I always resisted like hospitalization. The first time I was in the hospital, I was like involuntarily there. Was there an event that precipitated that? Yeah, so there were two suicide attempts that precipitated that, although they happened in Arizona. And then I like went back to Connecticut and I continued to be suicidal once I was back with my parents. And, you know, I had a gun and I pulled it out from under my bed and was like holding it lovingly and decided to go to the hospital. And so, yeah, I went to the hospital and presented at the hospital but like then I ended up being in like their locked unit for so long that I was like I'm better like I've changed my mind <laughs> and they were like too late and so you know I was like committed for 14 days after that and it was like a state hospital too it was not the best like introduction to being hospitalized but then I was hospitalized several more times after that in my 20s so a lot of experience with hospitalization all related to suicide attempts or other issues? No, there was a mixture of things. So when I was in high school, I saw myself as mentally ill. And so I wanted to go to a therapist. I had to kind of fight my parents to have therapy. And then they eventually agreed. And I went to, um, like my first therapist, it's interesting. Like he was a neuropsychologist and he actually is a man who tested like at the time, the guy who was like the smartest person in the world, you know, had like the highest IQ. And so this was my therapist. And so he was always like, you're so gifted. Like he refused to pathologize me, hmm. which was interesting because it was just like 
the opposite of what I experienced in my 20s when they were like, oh, let's find a label for you. So I started out with this man who really tried to help me see that I was very gifted. He would tell me all the time, like, oh, you're so talented. But I didn't understand. I was like, am I? I just didn't see it because I was an underachiever at the same time. Like, you know, I was a PG underachiever. So at school, like I didn't give a shit about school. Nothing about school interested me other than the social aspects. So I wanted to like roam the halls and talk to people and go outside and smoke cigarettes, but I didn't want to actually like do any work or invest myself into like homework or achievement. I was not a high achiever in high school. I want to add something there because, well, first I just want to say to listeners who are like, what is this PG she's talking about? It, we're I'm sorry. To- <laughs> no, that's okay. But I just have a lot of people when I'm talking, sometimes I say yeah, like HG or PG or MG or something. And they're like, why is that? Um, so anybody who's listening, we're talking about profound giftedness, which is at the high end of the scale of giftedness. And then I just want to as well point out that this speaks to a misconception that many people have about giftedness, that if you're gifted you're naturally a high achiever and you naturally (laughs) want to learn everything. And I always say, no, no, trust me. I've met lots who are gifted, but quote, low achieving or people that just aren't interested in high high achievement. That's just not where their gifts are directed. And that's not like something's wrong with them. It's just the way that it is for them. That's right. But that was a huge part of my gifted trauma was that I too had internalized the expectations and beliefs about giftedness. And that played out in how people treated me. And so I was kicked out of high school my junior year. And it's a long story. So you have to just suspend your interest about really why that <laughs> happened. But but it was related to what I already said. Like I was like a behavior disordered teenager in some ways. And so I had done a series of things until the school was like, okay, we're done with you. And so I left this private school and went to public school. And um, like by the end of my junior year, I was suicidal again. And again, like obsessed with death and drugs. But when I express these feelings, like the thing that my guidance counselor and the people at school were concerned about was my lack of achievement. And so they call in my mother and like, instead of saying she's like suicidal and obsessed with drugs, they were like, she's going to end up going to a second rate school. Why aren't you worried about this? Like she should be going to like Yale, not, well, I ended up going to Arizona State. And so I just continually disappointed everyone with my underachievement while they, it felt to me, ignored my mental health struggles. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you would feel completely ignored. How could you not? Exactly. I totally felt invalidated by everybody because they just saw things from such a different perspective as me. And I didn't get this disconnect because of course- I didn't know at that time of my life, like I didn't have the perspective that I would have years later about what was happening. I didn't know anything about it, but I saw myself as mentally ill. And that summer after that happened, I was very discouraged and I decided to take things into my own hands. And so I said, okay, well, I'm going to figure out myself what's going on with me because I am better equipped than anyone else to figure these things out. And it's interesting for me to go back. Like, so I'm a diarist. You know, I'm like a person who's been writing a journal since I was like 16. So I can go back and read these things that I was writing that summer when I was 17 and and seeing that I started like trying to figure out my childhood and figure out what was wrong with me. And this was a theme that would continue for years. What's wrong with me? Why can't I be 
the person that everyone wants me to be. Well, I needed to be my own self. Like I didn't realize that it was okay to be me and it was okay to be different. I was like, this must be mental illness. It's so but, sad. <laughs> I mean, it is, it is sad. And so I thought it was mental illness, but again, I just, I had this affinity for drugs. And so my senior year was all about drugs. You can't say that I became an addict, but I was an addict in my mind at that point in that imaginal space that I was living in. I was totally using drugs all the time. And so I was trying to make my external reality kind of match my internal reality. And so I did, like I sought out cocaine and I was smoking pot as much as I could. And I ended up going to drug treatment. My mother had left, like I was at the drug rehab and it was like the month before I turned 18. And I just remember having this moment of utter like, panic and realization because in that moment I was sitting there and I thought oh my god like I don't really belong here I belong in a mental hospital because I'm obviously nuts I'm not really a drug addict yeah I mean it was too late then <laughs> like but I ended up leaving like a week later and you know you have to understand whenever I talk about these experiences of being hospitalized you almost always get tested as soon as you're in a hospital. Yeah. And so every time I've been hospitalized for the most part, there's been some testing. And so then they're like, oh, well, you're like a genius. So what's wrong with you that you can't get your shit together? Like, why would you use drugs? You're so smart. Like, don't you know better? This is so and damaging. It was just, it was absurd. So then I left that place after like a week and then I went home and try to just go to Narcotics Anonymous and like have my own program. But my school was like, I mean, you never finished drug treatment. And so I had to like go to another place and finish treatment. And I remember how they didn't even know how to like help me with my homework. And like, there was no one in the drug treatment who had ever like taken physics. And I'm just like, <laughs> okay. It was always like that. Like I just never matched whatever environment I was in. People just never knew what to do with me. And it always made me feel like it was me that was lacking and that it was something wrong with me. Do you know if you could have just been whoever you wanted to be, were you aware at that time? Because I mean, was was your parallel reality, I would guess it was a reaction to what was expected of you. But if you hadn't had those unrealistic or unfitting expectations from the outside, do you know who you wanted to be? I guess that's a good question that I... I would have to say that I, I don't think I had a clear view of like who I wanted to be or who I could be, you know, because I, I didn't understand my gifts and I didn't understand a lot of really basic things that I know now in my forties about myself that I didn't, I didn't understand. Like now I know that I'm a very empathic person, that I have a very strong ability to absorb other people's emotions and that I'm very emotional well, I saw my emotionality in adolescence anyway, as just more evidence that there was something wrong with me. And of course, I didn't know that I was taking in other people's emotions and that I was, I'm such a sponge for people's feelings. Like I didn't know that. And so because my parents had problems, you know, in their relationships and in their lives, like my father was an alcoholic. And so that created so much drama and tension and difficulty. Well, I was absorbing all of this their anger with each other and all of those feelings. And I didn't realize that was happening. I mean, this is just not something that I was aware of until I was like in middle age. Yeah. And in addition to sort of absorbing that 
toxicity, I mean, even if that wasn't, like you said, it's intergenerational. It's not like we're saying, oh, what horrible people they were. But I mean, they were just in their own toxic loops from their own pain. And, you know, you're absorbing that. And it kind of brings to mind this neglect aspect where it's like you're getting a lot of toxicity. You're downloading all of this emotional information. But whatever other information you would have needed, like positive, supporting, something helping you figure out who you are, helping you figure out what you want. It just like wasn't there. It's like you had this toxic downloads of (laughs) their emotions. And then you had like the toxic downloads of what everybody expected of you in terms of achievement. Um, Right. Because you were tested so early because they knew you were a quote genius. Right. Uh, And then this total, like, I mean, I'm almost picturing like this black hole or this void of who you really are. Totally. I just didn't know. I had no sense of myself and I was, you know, dissociating. And so again, in my journal, (laughs) I'm going to, I'm sure refer to my journal many times, but you know, my senior year, I wrote like before I went to rehab at one point, like I had gotten upset with my mother about something. And I wrote like, again, it was about expectations and like, well, I don't even know who I am. I don't even feel like I'm real. Like, and I'm just an observer here. Like I'm not even like a real part of this. And I felt like that way for years that I just was observing from the outside that I wasn't really connected. That was a huge problem for me, like to not feel like I was real. You know, I mean, if you don't feel real and connected, you're in trouble. And so that was something that everybody missed about me because I wasn't articulating it. I mean, because of my pain and because of how like shut down I was in some ways, I couldn't say things to people, but I could write them. You know, and so I could write these things down in my journal, but I could never say them to anybody because, again, I had this like angry aspect of myself. And I was very much like a don't fuck with me kind of person in high school and beyond for a long time. That's how I protected myself from being further, you know, injured. But at the yeah. same time, and I feel like it's really important to say that I was very blessed compared to a lot of people like me that I've met in adulthood because. There were so many people invested in me and trying to help me. I had adults who really cared about me and who took the time to try to help. And I also had a lot of age peer friends in high school. A lot of people cared about me. And I think part of it was people saw me as very gifted, even though it didn't come out in school and my achievement, like they knew that about me because this is the PG experience. When you're PG, People see it in you. It's inescapable. I talked at a higher level than other kids. My interests were higher level. Like I was obsessed with oncology in high school along with drugs. And so, you know, I was reading like medical textbooks and very interested in this stuff, volunteering at the hospital, but I was also obsessed with drugs. There were always like these conflicts. And and again, like with Dabrowski's theory, when I came to it, I was like, ah, it's ambivalences and ambitendencies. Like I was in a unilevel disintegration, Yeah, but I didn't have that language. I had the DSM. And so yeah. I purchased my first DSM when I was a senior and was like deep into it, trying to figure out what was wrong with me. And I, I really landed on many options, but when I was 19, somebody told me I was bipolar. And so I was like, oh yes, that must be it. I do have mood swings. And the same woman who diagnosed me with that was also like, I think you're narcissistic. Like, I think you have narcissistic personality disorder. And so in my twenties, 
I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder. I had the Menninger Clinic also wonder if I was antisocial because I admitted that I had been kicked out of high school and was gifted. And to the Menninger Clinic, they were like, well, we don't think that you can be like so gifted and uh, so broken without being antisocial. But then they, they were like, well, maybe it is just borderline. And in my records, they talk about my characterological difficulties. Like it's always, it was always my fault in my character that was disordered. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. I have, you know, hundreds of pages of medical records about myself, which was like traumatic in itself to find in my 40s. Oh, I can imagine Oof, having to process that. Right. And so also panic disorder. I'm trying to think of what other diagnoses I've been given, like so many. Uh, I was bulimic at one point. There may be more, but a lot, like many, many. Oh, ADHD. Yeah. So yeah, many diagnoses, many hospitalizations. I don't remember at the moment right now if it was like 10, it might've been 12, maybe with the drug rehabs, it was 12. But yeah, I mean, again and again in the hospital, different hospitals, there's a lot to say about mental health treatment as like traumatizing in itself. Yeah, because there's the general human experience of being treated in the mainstream mental health system. And then there's the experience of being profoundly gifted, being treated in the mainstream mental health system. Yeah, if you have strong overexcitabilities, the mental hospital is not the place for you because, you know, I just have all of these images in my mind right now of the things that I had to do, like running up and down the halls because I had like so much energy or like once my mom brought me my basketball and just bouncing the ball like up and down the hall. And then they would be like, take that outside, like in the smoking area, you know? So like driving the people smoking nuts with my basketball and, but smoking a lot, like, you know, once you're in the system, I mean, you learn the ways of the other patients. Like I went on disability for mental illness when I was 23. And so that is such a trap. I've had people talk with me in, you know, these more recent years, like, should I have my child go on disability? They are so far from being able to work. And I'm like, let me tell you what a trap it is to go on disability when you're like 20, because it's a pittance and you internalize the belief that you're disabled. And then like trying to go get a job after you've been on it for a few years. Oh, it's just so damaging. Yeah. I spent like 13 years on disability and I actually like returned to college and even graduate school, I was still on disability, but I remember like I was getting my master's degree and I was like 30, two or 33. And I remember the psychiatrist being like, well, it's great that you're getting your master's degree in social work. Like, that's wonderful, but you may never be able to work full time. Like you have such a terrible history that it's hard to see how you're ever going to actually function in the world. But honestly, in the moment I was relieved because I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, thank God I'm not going to lose my disability payment. But yeah, no, social security, it's a real trap because you internalize the belief that you can't that you're not as good as people who aren't disabled. Like, will you ever be able to do it? It it can be very damaging. Yeah. And the irony of ending up there because of being chronically misunderstood, (laughs) like, right. In a sense, we could say chronically disabled by your context and then ending up still believing you're disabled for 13 years. 
Yeah. And even beyond that, because they took me off of it. Eventually I went to, I went for another review because again, like when you're on social security, you're getting reviewed all the time so you can stay on it. And so then after I got my master's degree, I worked as a social worker for a couple of years and decided to go back for my PhD in psychology. And that person who reviewed me while I was a doctoral student was like, no, now that you're getting your PhD, like, that's it. You're not disabled. <laughs> I was like, oh. but then, but I mean, there was like a crisis. Cause I'm like, is that true? And then I decided, yeah, you know, I don't think I am disabled anymore. Like I can do this. It took a long time for me to, to get over that and to work through like my own feelings of not being good enough. And it's only the last couple of years, even that I feel like I've like shed that part of my past. As you're talking about your story, I'm just picturing what would your whole life have been like if you had been in a culture that said, okay, who is this unique person? Fine. We have your IQ. All right. Great. That you fit in a certain category, but who is this person? Not, oh, good IQ that matches what our preconceived notions are about what a person with that IQ should want to do and who they should want to be. I know there were other things at play. There were other, you know, traumatic factors at play, but I'm just thinking in general, you know, as it relates to the giftedness, there's something so profoundly invalidating about this concept of genius and that it has to go with high achievement. I mean, I've met so many people and and I also relate to it. Those of us who are more empathic, those of us who are multi-potentialites, those of us who don't fit in the mold. And I think, you know, for a lot of PG people, it's what you were talking about. It's very relatable, sort of feeling like you're on the outside looking in. Where do you fit? How do you fit? And we're not going to be like those people who are just fitting into that cultural narrative. Some people do and good for them, but what about the rest of us? (laughs) I know. It's interesting while you were just saying that, like I had an image of my son, you know, because I have a child. He was born when I was 33, the end of my first year of my master's program. And he looked so different from me when he was young. He was extremely hyperactive and so all over the place that I didn't recognize his giftedness. I ended up traumatizing my own kid by not seeing him, you know? Mm -hmm. And so he was invalidated he was not seen until I figured my own shit out in some ways. I came to the field of gifted education and started to figure things out about myself because of my kid. And this is a very common phenomenon in the gifted community Oh yeah, where people, right? Like, I mean, it's just such a classic thing. I discovered the term 2E, twice exceptional, because of my son. I remember the first time a parent said to me, I think he might be twice exceptional. And I was like, what the hell is that? And she (laughs) said, gifted and disabled. You know, he was being evaluated and we were learning, getting his like ADHD diagnosis. And when she said that to me, I was like, I know what gifted looks like. Mm. You know, that's not what this is. But it was because of my expectations of what giftedness are, I was invalidating and traumatizing my own kid. And so again, like with the intergenerational trauma, And we did end up discovering his giftedness or his 2E-ness. But the thing is, discovering that term, when I went and Googled it and started investigating it, I was like, oh my God, this helps make sense of what happened to me. Once I graduated high school, like the word gifted just didn't stick with me. 
And when I did bring it up, like I, at the Menninger clinic, I tried to tell them I was identified as a gifted kid. Like in my mom too, they interviewed her. I was gifted, but then I got kicked out of school. But in my records, you can see they took that information. Like she claims to have been a gifted <laughs> child. It was so suspect because of how I presented. Yeah. But yeah, like learning to e. Whoa, it put me on this whole journey. And that's how I discovered Dabrowski's theory. Because I was a doctoral student at the time. And I put my dissertation on hold because I'm like, okay, I'm going to do an autoethnography. Because, like, I'm reading qualitative research books to do my dissertation and discovering that there's this thing called autoethnography. And so I'm like, oh, a research method about you know, my own past. Uh, here I am like with mountains of personal data, my journals, like 500,000 words of my own text, all of my medical records. Well, I didn't have all my records at that point. I purchased my records from like the Menninger Clinic. And oh my God, so interesting. And so I went on this like personal research study and I interviewed like 10 people who had known me when I was a teenager. It was so interesting. I interviewed like my former vice principal and a former teacher and other people. And like, I mean, I'll never forget my vice principal. I was like, so did the things that you guys learned with me help you with um, other kids like me? And he laughed and he was like, what other kids like you? <laughs> you know, they were like, you, like, I was like a singular event in the schools that I was in. This is the PG experience. It's very different to be this way, to be so intense, to have this very different experience of reality. And hearing that kind of stuff, I was like, on the one hand, it was very validating because I had always felt like an alien, right? Like dropped into this, <laughs> this environment where I didn't fit. But on the other hand, it was like just so sad for me because I just didn't realize at the time, like I remember these people were so kind to me and everybody tried to help me, but I didn't realize how unusual it was or like how much they were struggling with me because that's what they were saying in these interviews. They were like, oh, Chris, it was very hard. Like it was causing like sleepless nights and people were so worried about me. But then on the other hand, they were like, well, we knew you would be fine because you're so gifted. I'm like, I wasn't fine. I spent years in and out of the mental hospital and like on disability. So my autoethnography was this huge healing journey for me. <laughs> and it also though helped these people. Like when I went back and interviewed these people and gave them context and I educated them about twice exceptionality and giftedness and the experience of having like world play or an imaginal world. And it helped them understand like what had happened with me. Because like when I was 20, I published a book, like I wrote a book at the end of high school that got published. And so that was another thing. When I went back and interviewed people, they were like, but your book. And I'm like, yeah, my book was like a blend of truth and fiction. Mm -hmm. It was the stuff that happened, but it was all like tainted by this imaginal experience that I had. And so I was able to explain this stuff and it was so healing for me to have those conversations and that's where I found Dabrowski's theory. Because in the midst of that, I discovered a chapter by, by Michael Pihovsky that completely blew my mind. And I was like, okay. I mean, if, if what this man is saying is true, 
then I'm like not right about myself. Like it's not a mental illness. He's calling it emotional giftedness. What? It really, it blew my mind. As you're talking, I'm just, you know, thinking about my own parallels. And when I was 28, I like sat down and said, okay, I've got to figure out what happened to me until now. And, you know, I had struggled with lots of things. I was never diagnosed with anything, but I could have been if I would have been in a situation where somebody would have been evaluating me for it. And then I I sort of got enough distance by the time I was 28. So I sat down and wrote my memoirs and I did what you did. I just went through everything. I'm also a diarist, like been writing since I was 15, everything about my life. So I've got boxes and boxes of journals, which I look back at now and think it's such a good thing that I wrote those because otherwise I don't know how it would have ever made sense of my life. I'm not that I think I've made 100% sense of it, but enough that healing has happened, you know, and that process also led me to going back and talking to my parents about things that had happened and what was really going on for me, talking to my sister, talking to other people in my life, friends that I'd grown up with. In my case, you know, there was the big religion thing, being stuck in the religion. So talking to people about how none of it made sense to me, but I wasn't able to say it back then. And, you know, what was really going on in my head and making sense for them and making sense for myself. That was a huge undertaking. And the funny thing is I still have edited these memoirs over the years. I've never been ready to publish them somehow, but still it was always this sense-making thing because with each thing that came, like when I learned about giftedness shortly after, then I went back and added in the gifted stuff. And then when I learned about neurodivergence, I went in, back in and added the neurodivergence stuff. And then when I learned about Dabrowski, I went back in and added the stuff about positive disintegration and each time it was like a different layer of making sense because I just relate so much with what you're saying, this looking in and going, what is this? Like, how on earth do I belong here? Who am I and what is my role here? So yeah, I feel like it's in its own way, it's a gift to have written all of that stuff and to be able to go back through. But I also think it's very complex. It's really hard work. And I think a lot of people don't know, even know how to start doing that. Yes. It's really hard work. There's no clear path to it. But it's interesting to me from a Dabrowskian perspective, because I realize now how much my writing has been auto-psychotherapy and self-education for me. And so it has literally been like my path out of suffering, even as I was um, documenting that suffering. And so like when I did the research study, it was the first time that I tried to be objective about it. But I found it was so interesting that like so many of the assumptions I had when I first started it, because, you know, of course, again, I was a doctoral student, so I was trying to be rigorous. And so I like laid out like, here are my assumptions and the things that I think I'm going to find. Well, I I thought a lot of things that were not quite right, because like I had this DSM perspective. And so I thought, well, I think I had ODD, like oppositional defiant disorder when I was a kid, because I remembered giving people such a hard time and being difficult. Well, when I interviewed people, their experiences of me didn't match like my memories. Or even when I read my own writing, I was like, you know, people talked about me being angry, but you don't see the anger in my words. Like there were all of these mismatches between reality or other people's memories and my memories and what I had documented. And so even just sorting that out was tough. It was such an intense experience, though, and so many tears were shed. Like, I can't say enough about 
how hard it was to revisit some of the things that I found in my writing. What was especially interesting to me is that this is not stuff that I was reading for the first time. I mean, over the years, I've read my journals, right? And so how come every time I read these things, I'll see like some new layer of experience that I hadn't recognized the last time. And like one, I really want to mention because it was such a profoundly sad thing to recognize in 1997, I had just turned 24 and I was living with my parents in an apartment. It was such a bad time. My father was like 40 and he was such a bad alcoholic at that point that he was having signs of dementia and his hips were failing. Like a year later, he was going to need like a double hip replacement. So our lives were really in turmoil. And my aunt, who's now dead, so I feel like it's okay to tell this story. She lived in the same apartment complex. So during this week, I was trying to go to partial hospitalization. I was really trying to get my shit together. I had been using drugs and like real drugs at this point. It wasn't like when I was younger and I was just playing around with them. I mean, I was like smoking pot every day, but also smoking meth and sometimes smoking crack and just really into drugs. So I was trying to get it together. I wanted to go to partial and so they were letting me go to partial, but my insurance was denying it. They didn't want me to go. But I, I really needed to go. And so one day I got home from partial and I went over to my aunt's apartment and she stabbed her boyfriend. I walked in and she stabbed him. And I'm, so I'm witnessing this violent act and I'm having to call the police. And, you know, and that night I'm writing in my journal, like, holy shit, you know, I'm like trying to calm down from that. And then like the man that she stabbed like a day later tried to assault my mother in the complex, you know, outside. And so I'm having these traumatic experiences. And I realized while I was reading about it that I wasn't going into partial and even telling them what happened. Mm -hmm. And like my insurance denied me and I didn't get to go. But like my doctor advocated for me and appealed to the insurance company and they still said no. And so here I was like trying to grapple with this trauma, like my aunt had been arrested and you know, like our lives were in such turmoil, but like my self-talk throughout, I'm like, I'll be okay. I can see that my doctor cares and it sucks that I can't go to partial, but I'm trying to get better. Reading about that week of my life just was so hard. And it was like, how did I not see these things the last time I read about this? But like that kind of failure of the insurance system and the mental health system they just rejected me from being able to to go when I was in like such a, a fragile time, really, in my life. That kind of stuff, wow, it was hard to process. And even now, like, I can talk about this stuff and not get emotional about it anymore, but I still feel like how sad that was. Yeah, coming back to this whole cultural expectation of like the genius who's winning the Nobel Prize at 24 or whatever, I want to present them this picture and say... Yeah, you think that's really to be expected from a person that's going through all these things. I'm just imagining, let's say you had that kind of high achieving mentality or something. Even if you did, this is real life where real people live, you know, right. <laughs> and not to say that, you know, winning a Nobel Prize isn't real too, but the key word is too. There's all these other lived realities that you often don't hear about. You just hear about the brilliant person who did that amazing research and won that prize. And that's the picture of what everybody sees. Oh, totally. I mean, and at the time when I was 24, of course, and I had had all of these 
expectations of myself at that point i was like i'm just an utter failure i wasn't even able to see at that point what i might be able to do although i kept trying to go back to school and actually that event that i just described happened in april of 1997 and in august i went to the university of nevada at las vegas and i tried to go back to school but my life was such a mess it just wasn't working and i tried and failed a semester like seven times in my 20s. You know, I kept trying to go back to school. I tried at UNLV a couple times. I went to Kansas State and tried. I tried at a couple community colleges and I just every time I was failing. But I like never stopped trying because I knew that I was meant to get a degree and I was meant to do stuff, but I I didn't have any clear vision of what it was going to be until I was a little older. Like when I was 28, I finally went back to school and I I knew by that point that like I mean, I say I knew, but like I had a really clear vision that I needed to get my bachelor's degree in sociology and then I needed to get my master's degree in social work. I had determined that. And so that's what I did. I did get my bachelor's degree in sociology and I did get my master of social work degree. And then I ended up getting my PhD in psychology. And it was all a journey of, again, self-education, but also like at that point, I knew that I wanted to help people somehow. So when you found positive disintegration, how did that sort of start to shift things for you? I mean, yeah, you went through this autoethnography process through your PhD. So that obviously, I know, I mean, this, the autopsychotherapy process and then doing it in a formalized setting, that's already huge. But my question is a bit more meta. What was the overarching journey for you mentally from something's wrong with me, quote, quote, to, oh, okay, I'm all right. This is just part of overexcitabilities and giftedness combined with traumas and such that have put me on this different path of development. So after the autoethnography, I had to like go back to working on my dissertation, but I also started going to conferences in the gifted world so that I could meet scholars because I felt like I needed a mentor and guidance and I knew that as soon as I like discovered that there was a field of gifted ed and giftedness, that I that's where I needed to go and help people. And so I would talk with people and tell them my story. And they were like, dig deeper into overexcitabilities and Dabrowski. And at first I was like, no, because when I came to Dabrowski's theory and overexcitabilities, even though that chapter by Michael blew my mind, I also kind of rejected it. Maybe not rejected, but like I did not embrace it. I was like, this is euphemistic. I didn't want to rethink my experience of being mentally ill. I had been comfortable with it. My autoethnography was about embracing being gifted and mentally ill. It wasn't about <laughs> rethinking it. Oh, so okay. I did not appreciate that. So when people kept telling me, oh, read more about overexcitability or Dabrowski, I was like, oh, no, like I didn't want to read more about overexcitability. Like I didn't like it. I was like, this is ADHD. It's not overexcitability. So I came to this from a very different lens than most people are like, oh yes, this is great. They embraced overexcitability right away, but I resisted it for a long time, <laughs> like a year maybe. And then I met Linda Silverman and she was actually a big help to me because she said the thing that I really needed somebody to say that I had not thought of. Because at that point, when I met her, I was rethinking bipolar disorder. And I was saying, well, I really had ADHD. That's what it is. And my doctor at the time was encouraging that, you know, I tried Adderall and Adderall was so much more helpful for me, including in like my emotional regulation. 
that I was ready, I felt like, to stop taking medication for bipolar disorder to see if I really had that. And so what Linda said was, well, if you have all of this writing about your life, have you ever gone back with fresh eyes and looked at it? Because, you know, she could hear from what I was saying that every time I looked at it, I had these a priori preconceived notions about myself. Had I ever gone back to it and just looked at what was there? Well, <laughs> no, I hadn't. And so when I did that, it was again, like another revelation. A year after reading this stuff, I was reading it again. And I'm like, oh my God, all of a sudden I could see that I was always pathologizing myself. And if you go to a psychiatrist and tell them all the things that are wrong with you, like they're going to believe you for the most part. Since I was pathologizing myself, it was just perpetuating this pathologizing of me. So I did stop taking the meds for bipolar disorder that summer. And I was fine. Like I was so hyper vigilant at first with my moods because you get trained when you have bipolar disorder to constantly be monitoring yourself and your moods. So I was constantly monitoring myself and I discovered that I didn't have it, but it would be like two more years of taking Adderall and also anti-anxiety medication until I finally was ready to just come off everything in the summer of 2017. It was actually five years ago this week that I just stopped taking all medication. And it's because at that point, I was a year into knowing Michael Bihofsky. I wanted him to be my mentor. We had a serious correspondence kind of from the start. And so a year after I was getting to know him, I was really kind of in a crisis. All of this stuff was so intense. And I asked him one time, can't you help with this? Like, don't you have any suggestions for like how to deal with this? And he was like, well, you're on medication. And that sentence from him triggered me so hard. And I was like, well, fuck this. I'm not going to take medication anymore. And I am going to see for myself what is overexcitability and what is mental illness. And so that's what I did. Like I experimented with myself, which I'm not saying anybody else should do, mind you. But I needed to know. I was like, well, what is this? He's like, if you see yourself with ADHD and you're taking this medication, I don't know what to tell you. And it was very interesting to navigate all of that. And again, that was five years ago. And like the difference in me personally between that time of my life and now is it's like I was a different person. And I've of course had that experience many times in my life because every time I've been through like a big disintegration experience, you know, I come out of it on the other end with so much more awareness and clarity about my issues and so I am kind of like at a, a different level, uh, in a different place. But if you had told me five years ago when I stopped taking Adderall and Clonopin that I could not be anxious anymore, like that I would resolve my anxiety, I never would have believed that it was even possible. Even though I still resonate with ADHD and I still resonate with neurodivergence, right? Like there's aspects of autism that I resonate with, uh, of PDA, like I can see myself in a lot of these things, but I don't experience myself as broken anymore. You know, I don't experience myself as disabled anymore. Yes, I'm different and I have a different experience of reality, but it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with me. And that is my message for people. And that's the message on my own podcast of this isn't something wrong with you. If you're overexcitable, if you are going through a disintegration, you have to be patient with yourself. You know, you have to 
really give yourself the space to grow through all of this instead of looking for answers in the DSM or in medication. It may help you. You may need medication to make it through. It's true. But know that this is not some defect in your brain. As you're talking about that, it's making me think of the model of giftedness that I use, which has the areas of intelligence, uh, which my listeners should be familiar with by now. And then we look at overexcitabilities that might be present. We look at neurodivergences that might be present. We look at mental health questions that might be present and trauma. And the idea is when a person comes to us, it looks like a whole tangle of things. And then we try to look at each of the threads in the tangle. And each of those threads have a different set of needs. So when I describe it in my trainings, I'm usually saying something like that the gifted thread needs to be expressed, that the trauma thread needs to be healed, that the overexcitability thread needs to be channeled, that the mental health questions thread needs to be treated perhaps, or and that goes together with the trauma thing. So it's treated, healed, and neurodivergence needs to be managed in the sense, usually more of managing one's environment, one's context, you know, so if we're talking about autism, for example, you know, managing the routine and making sure that there's not a lot of sensory overwhelm and the kinds of things that people with autism struggle with. And all those aspects of ourselves have their own set of needs and their own gifts to give, and they all interplay with each other. And so the goal becomes figuring out who you are what are all of the threads that come in your particular tangle and how do we organize them and take care of them in a way that they all thrive both individually and as a system and i think it's hard to be alive and not have a mental health issue come up here and there i mean if nothing else if you have an ideal life you're still in the middle of a capitalistic system if you're listening to us from you know the west you are in a patriarchal system you know that's come from colonialism so if nothing else, you're born in a system that's really crappy and is destroying the earth. So there's not a person in the world that I would believe that has no mental health concerns ever. Right. Given, you know, the way that the world is at this point. And that's part of being a gifted human. That's part of being a human. And that plays into all of these other things. If you have overexcitabilities, yeah, those experiences, that's going to do something with those overexcitabilities. And a lot of times when I'm doing assessments, I can find where the overexcitability and the trauma get hooked together. The trauma can make the overexcitability go on turbo speed and seem quite destructive. When in fact, if it's channeled well and if the trauma is healed, the overexcitability is going to be, you know, just a unique gift. All of these things play together and your story illustrates what it looks like when you understand all of these threads and they don't become, quote, disabling factors anymore. They just become, this is who I am, and this is how I manage who I am and express who I am and heal the things that are not me, but that happened to me and that altered right. who I am in a way that doesn't suit me and that doesn't fit me, you know? What you just said, I mean, that's really the crux of Dabrowski's third factor dynamism, where you're you know, accepting and nurturing these parts of yourself that are yourself and that you see as higher and who you should be and like rejecting or just letting go even of these aspects of yourself that aren't really you and that aren't like serving your, your greater goal 
or your personality ideal. Like there's so much lingo around Dabrowski that obviously has become like a part of my everyday. But yeah, like the whole theory, I feel like I have to say it since we're having this conversation. I mean, the theory made sense of my whole life because it provided me a framework that isn't present in psychiatry or psychology elsewhere. I mean, Dabrowski really did have this visionary view that these things that get seen as, well, he called it psychoneurosis, or now like we would call it mental illness, but that it's not necessarily an illness, that it's just a process of growth that you're going through, that it's painful and it, the suffering is real. You know, it's, it's not meant to invalidate that at all. But anyway, this framework, whoa, it did make sense of my life. And, and that's why I just knew once I really dove into it that this is it. Like this is the framework that helped finally turn things around for me and help me go from feeling mentally ill to not mentally ill. And that's why I'm so passionate about it. And that's why I talk about it so much and like have my own podcast about it and why I bring it to people because I know how powerful it is. And of course, since we've been doing our podcast, well, with my co-host Emma, like since October, so many people have reached out to say like that they too have had this moment of realization. I mean, one guy told me recently that it really was like a Plato's cave moment of like, whoa, you know, of just finally being able to to make it out and and to get it. And it's like hearing that from people, you know, I think about myself still like back when I was in my 20s and I was like, is anything ever going to come from this? Like, yeah. it just felt like it was so futile. And I used to think that I wasted all of these years of my life. But now I know that it wasn't a waste. I had to go through all of that in order to understand this stuff and to be able to help people. And so it, it helps to have that perspective on the past. Yeah. And when you're doing the kind of parts work or inner child work or something like that, it's also nice to be able to go back to the younger selves and say, look, there's a theory that explains what you're going through. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I mean, I have so much more self-compassion for my younger self. I had so much shame around who I used to be and didn't understand it. You know, it was very hard to have compassion about the things that I went through or that I was like. I just saw myself like, oh, I was such an idiot when I was in my 20s. Mm -hmm. But now I can have so much self-compassion for those parts of me and I can see like what a big deal it is to to do that healing work. And if you have a serious trauma history, there's always going to be something that triggers you. But you have to start like just recognizing, oh, this is just a wound, you know, and being able to be gentle around it and and just like continue that healing. Like I don't think I'm ever going to be done with this healing work until I'm dead, but it's okay. As you were talking about this, I wanted to talk about how overexcitabilities and giftedness are not the same thing. And when you yes. figured that out and how that realization helped you in separating out these threads. Yeah, I mean, when I first came to it, of course, I just accepted the dogma that overexcitability and giftedness went hand in hand. And of course, in some ways they do, because it is a common experience for gifted people to have overexcitability. And especially intellectual, but not everybody does. Not all gifted people have overexcitability. And that's become really clear to me thanks to research and examining the data. And so they don't all have overexcitability. And not everybody with overexcitability is gifted. And that's become clearer to me too. Another thing that's important to know is that like in my deep dive into the theory and Dabrowski's early Polish work, especially, you know, it became clearer that 
you can't say like overexcitability is something different than ADHD or autism too. Like he was totally writing about these things and talking about them. And he was working with children who were in locked institutions, like in the thirties. And so he was obviously working with children who were profoundly disabled by their experience of overexcitabilities. So there are a lot of misunderstandings about overexcitability that need to be corrected. And I know that it's going to be kind of a long haul to do that. And I'm glad that you brought that up because it's important to say these things. When I think about my kid, like seeing overexcitabilities and seeing that in him was what opened the door to him being gifted for me. I was like, okay, like this exists in this field of gifted education. Is he going to have a gifted IQ when he gets tested? And yeah, I mean, lo and behold, he did. And so I do have to wonder how many more kids we would identify using this if we did it in a different way. You know, if we just looked at all kids through this lens of overexcitability and were more open-minded and didn't have to do like individual IQ testing with each one, which is obviously never going to happen, like, because we're never going to find kids that way. Like, that's not the answer. But like, just what I've seen, on the other hand, there are some people who have brought their kids with strong overexcitabilities for testing, assuming they must be gifted only to find out that they have average intelligence. Like it goes both ways. So it's very important to decouple these things for sure. Yeah, I agree, which I'm preaching about all the time in my trainings and whenever I can speak out about it. It's important both for gifted people and for people with overexcitabilities who are not gifted. Because once you start to couple them, we've had a lot of confusion over the years, people coming in and saying, well, I definitely recognize myself in the overexcitability, so I must be gifted, but then finding they don't fit in to right. the gifted community and blaming themselves, feeling dumb, feeling something's wrong with me, you know, all of that. That's very important to understand. And, and truly, the thing that helped me understand that is that I was working at the Gifted Development Center and yeah. able to look at the records and to really examine people's stories. Because that's what I was doing. I was looking at outliers. And when I looked at the outliers, you had five strong overexcitabilities. And I could see that they could also come in for testing and have 100 IQs. Then I was like, okay, this is very clear cut. People ask me often, okay, so how do you know the difference between the two? So for the listeners who are thinking, I wonder how you know the difference between the two. Here's what I say. With giftedness, you see high complexity in whatever area. So complexity of emotions, complexity of imagination, complexity of intellectualization. And with overexcitability, you see a lot of intensity, but it doesn't necessarily equal complexity. It can become complex, especially if you have multiple overexcitabilities, then they can start to overlap and kind of be a sort of complex intensity, but they don't have the gifted complexity that you see even without overexcitability. Yes. And I see this in my clients because, you know, people come to me now, of course, because like I'm the Dabrowski person, right? So they're coming to me and they have this in their minds already. And so I see this too. My clients who are most gifted are the ones who are grappling with complexity to the point that it is paralyzing for them, you know, where they're like, there's so much going on in their minds and that they, it's hard to even talk about where they'll say, like, I have some clients who are like, like, I can't even go down this path with you because it's like overwhelming. And so, you know, they, they're just trying to take like bite-sized pieces where they can and, and we're trying to work it out. 
And the clients who aren't at that same level of giftedness, it's just a different conversation. For me, it's it's clear and yet it's hard right now in the moment with you to articulate it because I don't want any of these clients to see themselves or hear themselves in what I'm saying either. You know, it's extremely tough for me to break the news with someone that they're not as gifted as maybe they thought they were because they came to this stuff and saw themselves in overexcitability. And so I just encourage people to let go of that label, not to get caught up in it, to just live their lives. You know, if you see yourself in overexcitability, then you're dealing with intensity. Like you said, like you have to learn how to live in a way where it's not sabotaging you to have this intense experience of reality. If you have this intense experience of reality and if you're very gifted, which obviously I don't mean to keep talking about it in terms of IQ. I realize that IQ is fraught and, you know, problematic. And yet like intelligence is also a very solid construct in psychology. We know it exists. And It's absolutely undeniable that people who have very high IQs have a different experience of reality, but it's the kind of thing that you can't explain or help somebody who doesn't have that experience understand. And this is where it's problematic. It's like multi-levelness in this theory. Well, explaining multi-levelness to somebody who doesn't experience multi-levelness is pretty tough. Uh Uh-huh. It is. (laughs) Right. Right. It's, it's very... These are not easy things that we're dealing with. Yeah. But just like the levels and with giftedness or non-giftedness and overexcitabilities and everything. I mean, for me, when I'm doing an assessment, I want to mirror as much as I can about how they really are, because that knowledge then sets them free to be themselves and to stop trying to fit into constructs that don't work. I mean, this is sort of your whole story, right? But specific to when I'm doing assessments and and telling somebody that maybe they show overexcitabilities, but not giftedness. Yeah. At the beginning, I had that feeling like, oh no, I'm going to let them down or something. And then I, over the years I've understood, especially because of people's reactions, I've understood that it's the best gift that I could give to give them the clearest mirror that I can, because gifted isn't better than non-gifted. That's right. It's just different. Non-gifted has its struggle gifted has its blessings and benefits and non-gifted has its blessings and benefits and everybody sort of belongs in whatever place they belong based on who they really are. So now I'm just happy to tell people what I see. And for the most part, people are very happy to hear. They're relieved to hear that somebody can see. And, you know, I can usually explain why I see it that way, which then helps them to understand, you know, why it is that way, as opposed to just saying, oh, no, she... She gave me a number that I don't understand and uh, I have to go like live with that while wondering why and and what it represents. The other thing that comes to my mind as we're talking about this is the difference between gifted trauma and trauma related to overexcitabilities, which I think is an important distinction for us to talk about as well. It is. And actually what I find when people come to me and they have strong overexcitability, but maybe aren't intellectually gifted it's usually that they have emotional overexcitability. And so I try to help that kind of person understand that, you know, strong emotional overexcitability. I mean, Michael has talked about emotional giftedness and that is a legit real thing. It's just as interesting and valuable as an experience of being like intellectually gifted. Like it should not be minimized. I mean, emotional giftedness is the key to multi-level development in the theory. Like you can't, 
grow and develop in a Dabrowskian sense, unless you have that piece of the overexcitabilities. It's so important to think about the difference between gifted trauma and trauma from overexcitability because, you know, gifted trauma comes from our societies that are so anti-intellectual. If you are intellectually gifted, people are so put off by that in so many ways. Like there's so many negative connotations to that particular way of being gifted that it is traumatic. I mean, I know that you must have also had a whole life of people being assholes to you because of your giftedness and being like, oh, you think you're so smart or you're such a know-it-all. It's hard to be a very intellectual person because this is not something that's appreciated or valued by our society because most people don't get it. Yeah. And I they would can't. Add, if if you're emotionally gifted as well, uh, you can get a lot of people saying, why do you know that about me? I mean, <laughs> that's been one of the big challenges of my life. Why do you know that about me? How could I not know that about you? But people don't want you to know that about them. And they push every button to get you away because you or, see that about them and you know that about them, whatever that's that, right. that thing is. Whatever that thing is, that's right. And like hand in hand with that is the fact that if you have this strong emotional overexcitability, uh, and I say this again, like my whole life, I've wanted to connect with people at a deep level. This is not something I realized until pretty recently. I want to have an emotional connection with people. It just is a natural drive for me. And yet, not only are most people not interested in having that reciprocity of emotional connection, but they're not even capable of it. And I don't say that as I'm not trying to be mean. They just literally aren't. And so if you have this experience of wanting to be able to connect with people at a deep level emotionally, well, you're going to be disappointed for most of your life. You will find maybe a few people who can do that with you and you'll get that emotional mirroring with them which is as important as intellectual mirroring or any other kind of mirroring. But you have to understand how rare that is and how, when you do find it, like how special and important it is, like, and has, you know, to be cherished really. Yeah. And one person can live both traumas. So you could have like intellectual gifted trauma and intellectual overexcitability trauma, and you could have emotional gifted trauma and, emotional overexcitability trauma and so on for the different ways. And I want to say that because there are people who are emotionally intelligent who don't want that level of intimacy, who don't have the emotional overexcitability. So you could have somebody not wanting you to know, as I was saying, for example, somebody might not want to know what I know because of emotional giftedness. They might want to get away from that. But if I don't have emotional overexcitability, that might not really bother me that much. It might bother me sort of intellectually. (laughs) Right. But it might not bother me so much emotionally, you know. But if I have emotional overexcitability and I really need that deep intimacy, yeah, that's going to bother me in a way that I can't bear. So sometimes it's helpful when I distinguish between the two with people because a lot of people will say, well, that's my gifted trauma. And I'm like, no, because you could be gifted and not have that reaction. You could feel that as not traumatic. You could be the same level of giftedness and not feel that as traumatic. But with your overexcitability, you're feeling that as traumatic. Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, it's important to distinguish between the two. 
Yeah, I mean, just hearing you say that is just made me have images of people like I have know plenty of people who are very intellectually gifted, who don't have emotional overexcitability or, you know, I mean, I know people who are intellectually gifted who don't even have intellectual it. You don't yeah. necessarily have these things. You can be very intellectually gifted and not have these experiences. And so that's a different experience of giftedness. And the thing that makes me really sad as somebody who works in the field of gifted education at this point, I consider that my field, even though I'm an outsider in it because I'm not an academic. Hmm. Like the thing that makes me so sad is what we're talking about right now, these experiences of giftedness, people in these programs who are being trained to like teach gifted students or work with them, you know, at an educational capacity, don't even get to hear about these things. Because the academics who are in the field who, you know, are like, oh, well, I'm gifted. Like, I know. Well, they only know their one experience of giftedness. And they haven't even made the effort to learn about these other experiences. They deny it. They invalidate it. And it's just like we have this culture in this field of recycling this trauma generation yes. after generation with these scholars. And I wonder how we can ever change this course and do something. I feel like this conversation we're having right now is so important and yet won't even get heard by the people who need to hear it, probably. Well, it'll, it'll be heard by some people who need to hear it, but the people who are, yeah, making academic theories and such about it maybe they're they like policy decisions and policy stuff decisions. like they're they need to yeah. hear this stuff and yeah, yeah, understand yeah. it's like legitimacy this is i'm very passionate about it like this is i will not give up on this i know that they wish that i would just go away and stop talking about dabrowski and overexcitability and they're like oh like it's such a burden their invalidation of it is so hard to take. Mm -hmm. Like there are so many people who find themselves in this stuff and are able to finally heal themselves mm -hmm. with this information and this theory and understanding giftedness as an essential part of themselves. Like that's what bugs me is that the people who are like, oh, we shouldn't even be talking about gifted children. They don't exist. We should be talking about how to serve these children in school as if there's no real experience of giftedness. I mean, give me yeah. a break. I know. I know, right? But this is all this all comes from this legacy like I said, all of these right. legacies of capitalism and the, this mindset that's basically how can we exploit you to be a commodity? Yes, exactly. And I do think we all need to be regenerative back into the system. I don't think any of us get to live for free in that sense. I don't mean that in an economic way. I mean that right. as like we all do have to contribute something to community. But I mean, I could contribute, I don't know, being a, a really kind person. Exactly. And being generous with my efforts. But I don't have to contribute winning prizes and making the most money and whatever that the educational system is going to tell me because you have XIQ, you need to be doing those things. Right. Um, no, I don't actually. Thank you very much. <laughs> that's right. I mean, and that's the thing too, is that like, you know, people come to me and they're like very idealistic people and they want to know like what they can do, how they can change the world. And I'm like, if you want to change the world, you have to change yourself. You have to do your own inner work. 
this is a big deal. Like that's how we can make the difference. I would argue that that is possibly the most important thing we could do is to actually heal ourselves and be able to be connected in, in community and in, in the present. I mean, the trauma of imaginational overexcitability. Like I didn't want to end this episode with you without saying how real that is. Exactly. Like my experience of having that imaginal world and that imaginal process was like the cause of so much suffering for me in so many ways when I was young. It took so much energy and effort to understand it. And like, I don't experience it in the same way anymore. And so I'm able to see it so much more clearly, but wow, you're so on point with the fact that all of these things have their own traumas attached with them and they all need to be dealt with. And this is the work that you can do to like change yourself. And when you do this work and you do like make these changes, it has an impact on the people in your life. Like we don't just come, we don't fall off like the apple tree. We are from gifted families too. Like we have gifted parents and siblings and cousins and you know we have gifted friends and like we have an impact on the people around us and so when we do our work other people see it and we're modeling to them how to be healthy and be in the world like it's all connected it is and when people when gifted people come to me and say okay how can i make change in the world i can hear that they're asking where do i fit in the current system to change the current system. And I'm always like, yeah, that's not how this works. <laughs> right. You have to get yourself enough out of the system in order to then come back and be able to propose something different to the system. And that's where you have positive disintegration that helps you reintegrate into a new version of yourself that's able, like you're in a new system mentally and emotionally and intellectually, one that is not predetermined by the norms and the systems that you were born into. And I think people feel, you know, I say I think, but I know because they tell me uh, that that a lot of people feel overwhelmed by that. Like, yeah, but who am I to do that? Or how could I even, or, it, you know, just it's scary in general. It's scary to let go of all of the labels. It's scary to let go of the medical model. It's scary to let go of the projections about what giftedness means and what is it for and so on. But I always just say, like, it comes back to like a philosophical question, which is who does your giftedness belong to? And what system do you want to belong to as a gifted person and as a person with whatever overexcitabilities you have or don't have? What system do you want to belong to? And then you have to create some space so that you can start belonging to whatever system that is. And that's not to say like, yeah, invent a parallel reality as your trauma and uh, imaginational overexcitability led, led you to do. That's not saying like invent a parallel reality where you're disconnected no. from the whole, but it's saying take the system that you're in and then get enough space from it so that you can reconfigure things and be um, I'll say it because I always talk about leadership, you know, so that you can be a leader from where you see things and so that you can be regenerative toward the system that we're in from where you see things from your new perspective. Totally. I agree. What you're describing, it like to tie it to Dabrowski in another way is like, it's a discovery of your own hierarchy of values. Like if you want to change the system and get outside of the system, 
that's what you're doing. You're going through a process of discovering what you value, and then you're trying to align your life with those values and live them. And I have to tell you, like, because I feel like you should include it in the show notes, I'm constantly sending people to your website where you have like this discovering your highest values. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I got that right, but yeah, yeah, it is. you have that. Yeah. This exercise of doing that. And it's interesting to me how many gifted people, this is what's on their mind. They want to know, like, like, what are my values? How can I figure this out? And I'm like, well, I know someone who has a way like has already <laughs> worked this out. And so I'm grateful to you for that because I, I mean, at least like a handful of times over the past few months, I've sent people there. I wrote the article because I saw it in every single coaching client that I saw back then when I wrote the article, because I was like, how do we know where to go if we don't know what's the most valuable to you? People would come with all their stories about, yeah, who I should be and all that. And I was just so beyond, I had left everything I should be to become what I had become and to find my own values and to find my life by that. And so I didn't have anything prescriptive for people, like nothing, nothing at all. I mean, I guess the most prescriptive I could have was I want you to be well, holistically well. (laughs) That was the best I could say, even though I specialize with highly gifted, high plus gifted people. I couldn't say anything more prescriptive than that. Not you should accomplish things. You should make a lot of money. People should adore you. Like I couldn't say any of those (laughs) things convincingly because I couldn't care less about that unless some of that was tied to their holistic well-being, you know? And so how could I know what they were supposed to do? It was up to their values to determine that. For some people, it was easy. They would sit down to do the exercise. They would identify the things that they valued the most, and they'd come back the next session and present it to me beautifully. And a lot of people really struggled through it, and I would have to work them through. It would bring, it would really like trigger traumas. Like, am I allowed to want what I want? Am I allowed to find those things pleasurable? Am I allowed to find gardening pleasurable when I know with my mind I could be, you know, reading the latest treatise of something and coming up with a new theory (laughs) of everything? Yes, yes, you are allowed to love gardening and the natural world and things that are not considered, you know, high intellectual pursuits, typically. So yeah, the highest values is, uh, I think it's a necessary step for anybody to go through. I agree. But that leads me to highlighting something that I wanted to highlight all throughout your story since things started to change for you. And you started to see yourself as not having a history of mental illness and not being disabled and not being defective is that you had a context to be able to do this in. And I want to say that because if a person that's listening, they're going through active trauma, if they have no space because they're totally overwhelmed with a million things, financial, interpersonal, professional, whatever, basically, if you're listening and you're going, oh, damn, why am I not further along? You know, I quit my job. I left everything. I basically lived like a hermit for several years trying to figure all this stuff out. And when I even like after I came back to the regular world, I regular world, whatever that is, I worked very little at the beginning. I spent a lot of time in reflection and study meditation. And even still, I quote myself as having one foot in the contemplative life and one foot in the regular world, you know, the busy world. It's ongoing. This is very, very ongoing. So I've had, I mean, I quit my my work when I was 27. 
and I'm 42 now. So I've had all of these years to be working with all of these things. And I trained as a psychologist when I was starting uh, at 18, you know, and I had been like you, I was like reading about all of these things as soon as I could get my hands on anything. My sister studied uh, social work. She's older than me. So I would like steal her books and study them even as a 12 year old, you know. So I've had a lot of years to be doing this and my particular trauma history was quite extreme so it pushed me in a way that a lot of people who have less extreme trauma history they're not pushed like I was so contextually there's a reason why I'm here and talking about all of these things and I think for you too contextually there's a reason that you're here talking about all of these things because you've had this ability to to be more distant from the quote regular world I say ability that's... I don't know if that's the right <laughs> frame that <laughs> I know. Yeah, I'm not sure either. I guess like the first thing that comes to mind is that this would be the time to thank my husband, Jason, who mm -hmm. is the one who really has given me the space to to do the things that I have needed to do. Like we met like 22 years ago now. And yeah, it's important to keep in mind that it's I've had a long space of being with a really supportive, stable partner. And that to me was like a huge game changer in my life and my story. Like when I lived with him, it, I kind of had like stability for the first time and connection with somebody who mirrored me well. And it was like, I had never had anything like that. And I still am so grateful for him every day. And he also is, you know, we've been blessed that, you know, financially I've been able to not have to worry about, earning like my end of the money in our yeah. relationship because you know he has been able to to support us like of course in the beginning when we were together I was on disability and I was contributing that way and then I was in school for a long time and I mean privilege is a huge part of my story and that always has to be acknowledged for sure yeah and to a degree I mean being PG comes with its own strange privilege Yes. In this regard. And I do want to say that as well, uh, because I do hear from people who are not PG, who are, you know, moderately gifted or so, and they want to have the results that a PG person is having in the same sort of time frame and in the same amount of investment and maybe not having the same kind of complexity of results and getting very frustrated with themselves. Like, oh, if I was doing it right, it would turn out like that. So I also want to acknowledge that because the point is your positive disintegration and your reintegration look like you. It doesn't look like anybody else's journey. Uh, yeah, there are some, just like with giftedness, we all have, we all share some kind of complexity, but how that complexity actually shows up and whether it shows up with all these other things I said, neurodivergence, overexcitabilities, trauma history, et cetera. Uh, that makes everybody's giftedness look different. And so in the same way, whatever your positive disintegration journey looks like and your reintegration and your highest ideals, those are going to be unique to you and to your own configuration. And that's so important. Like if you're listening to Chris's story, get inspired by it, but don't think that you have to do it like Chris, because <laughs> this right. is Chris's story. <laughs> It's true. It, it's so individual. And I see that already though in people because, and of course it's natural, like we see someone's story and, you know, and it's like, it gives us a model for what we could do. 
but yeah, like it's not going to happen this way or the way that I did it. And it shouldn't be that way because it is so individual. And again, like acknowledging privilege, I just was sitting here thinking, I mean, I feel like I have to say too, like my, my mom like lives with us as a parent. Like I, I hate to call myself a workaholic because that's so negative. There's such a negative connotation there. And I don't mean it in a negative way, but I never stop working kind of because I love what I do. And so yeah. I'm constantly thinking and writing and working on this stuff. But like my mother lives with us and she helps raise my son who's now 16. And like, to me, a beautiful part of my story is the fact that my mom and I, like my dad, like he died when he was 52. I mean, he's been dead for like almost 13 years from alcoholism. And like for us to have like repaired our relationship to have her like live with us and be a part of our lives. Like this is all a part of the healing journey. Yeah. And so, you know, all of these things have contributed to allowing me like the space and ability to do what I do. Yeah, absolutely. I think the thing to be inspired by is of course the general structure of the theory and then the motivation and the dedication and the sustainable effort that has gone into it. Those are the things to be emulated, not the specific details of how that turns out. I mean, people right. sometimes tell me, yeah, well, I, I'd like to be like you. I'd like to have the same sort of, you know, success or something. And I'm always thinking, no, you don't. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. I mean, you want your own version. You want your, yes, because you, the, the pleasure of going through this whole journey is to discover who you are. And it actually, would be like being stuck in in level two or three if you didn't find out who you it's are. true moving to level four is really about taking that step and saying this journey is not going to be like anybody else's journey that's right there's a point where you really have to trust yourself and yeah. your intuition and to do what you know is right even when people are telling you not to do it or when i you know it's that's a fraught thing to say because of course you know what I'm talking about is like when I've been doing my work over the past several years, what I was doing was so different than what has been done or what people expected that they were trying to push me in other directions and to say like, no, that's not for you. Or like, no, that's not the right thing. And I had to just be like, no, this is what I need to do and do it. And it's hard because you're pushing up against the system and like the boundaries and like trying to do things differently. And guess what? Like people don't embrace that because you're shaking things up and it's not pleasant to like upset the system. <laughs> it's not embraced, but you have to, I mean, you have to do it if you want to reach that next step. Yeah. And I always find it is embraced afterward. <laughs> right. And it's embraced easier when you're just sure and you just trust yourself. I mean, I've found in my life many, many times where I say to others, I know you don't agree, but this is what I'm doing. And they go, okay, she knows what she's doing. So I don't have to worry about it. Because a lot of times what happens is that people get worried for you. I've had a lot of people tell me, don't do that because they're trying to protect me. But they don't right. realize that by trying to protect me, they're trying to protect me from becoming who I am and expressing who I am. And so I'm like, well... I don't need you to protect me from myself. Thank you very much. <laughs> right. But if I can say it, just like, I, yeah, I know that this isn't the path that you would choose for me, but it's the path I'm going. 
people seem to relax. Like they know that I feel safe with myself, but it's like, if in the past when I've tried to express it to other people and I'm not feeling safe with myself and I'm having doubts, then they, then they can really go on the attack and be like, if you don't, you know, if you do that, you're going to have terrible consequences. And because they can see somehow or sense somehow that it's, it's maybe helping me solidify fear against myself so that I don't take action in that direction. So I think it's not only just about making other people uncomfortable because it's like they don't want their paradigm to shift. It's also that they are scared for you going out on your own. And there's that key moment that comes when you go, I just have to trust myself and trust my intuition. And other people do seem to get it. And if they really don't after a long time, you know, maybe this is not a person you want to be close with because That's you right. surround yourself with people who allow you to trust your own intuition as long as you're not hurting anybody. Yes, exactly. That's yeah, that was so well said. It's so true that a big part of it is that people worry for you because not everybody has your vision. You know, you have to kind of trust your, your vision. And if you have that and other people don't have it, then you can sabotage yourself by like having that self-doubt or letting fear like get in the way. It's yeah. it's tough. Yeah. So, I mean, as we close, I'd like to just do what I usually do, which is let's talk about resources and next steps for people who are listening, who are like intrigued and inspired and want to do something. Where would you recommend people start both in terms of next steps? Like, for example, my first thing would say, make some space in your life. Uh, so it's next steps like that, but also resources to explore. Yeah, next steps for sure. Make space in your life. Be gentle with yourself through this process. Don't expect things to change overnight. But when it comes to like where you can look for more about what we've been talking about, like for one thing, I have a podcast that I co-host with Emma Nicholson and it's called Positive Disintegration. And so I would say listen to our podcast because if you're interested in Dabrowski's theory and the overexcitabilities and giftedness, these are the topics that we're talking about. And we've had a lot of guests so far talking about this stuff. Jen joined us on an episode, which hasn't come out yet, but I think it was 22. So yeah, I mean, you'll find some answers there. And I have just this year started a nonprofit called the Dabrowski Center. And the center's mission is to create like a home for the theory and a home for people who are gifted or not gifted to find answers in what Dabrowski was talking about with positive disintegration and overexcitabilities. And so there's an archive and I mean, we're working on the website right now. It's been kind of slow going because it's been a busy summer, but uh, you can reach out through there for more resources. Soon there's going to be much more available. There is a whole Dabrowski community of people who get this. Uh, we're all at different places in our development and our different understandings, but you'll find your people around the theory somehow. You know, I have a study group. If you're really interested in diving deep into Dabrowski, you can reach out to me and talk about joining the group on Facebook. There are books. The best book to read about overexcitability is Michael Pihovsky's mellow out, they say, if I only could, Intensities and Sensitivities of the Young and Bright, which is published by Royal Fireworks Press. 
Living with Intensity, which is an edited book by Susan Daniels and Michael Behofsky is another resource. I've written about this stuff too. If you go to my website, my stuff is linked there. Uh, I also have, I'm also on ResearchGate. Um, but a lot of this stuff is also in our show notes from the podcast. So if you go to the podcast, mm-hmm. you'll find a lot of this like naturally just in the show notes as well. Oh, and then Emma, like my co-host Emma actually has a YouTube channel called Adults with Overexcitabilities. And Emma's videos are great. She has a blog called Tragic Gift. I point people her way all the time at this point because my stuff is kind of academic and her stuff is like easier to read, more fun to read probably. And so, you know, there's a place for you out there. If you keep looking, you'll find that right match for what you enjoy. Like I'm not particularly a video person, but we're getting to the point where there's enough content out there. So it's kind of nice in different ways. Yeah, I think at this point, there's so much in all of the different media that people can find what suits them best, what suits their learning style best. Right. And I also want to say that if you've heard this episode and you want to reach out to me and tell me about your story or there's something that I've said that really resonated, please, you know, feel free to email me. Jen, you can put my email in the the show notes. It's totally fine. And yeah, I mean, reach out know that I am a little overwhelmed sometimes with emails and life. And so it may take me a couple of days to get back to you, but I will. I think that's a very good start for anybody who is interested in in starting to explore this. If somebody is listening that has a pretty significant mental health journey, I want to say again, you know, be gentle in the process of exploring this. As Chris has shared, this all happened for her over many, many years. This disentangling process and rediscovery, clarifying, redefining the journey, and through a lot of hard work, through the auto-psychotherapy, auto-ethnography, and just general healing and stuff. So yeah, be gentle in the process as you're going through. When I said make space, it was really because, again, context is key with any of these things. And if you're trying to smash this into an already super busy, super overwhelming life, you're just going to get frustrated. So if you're going to dig into it, take some time off, give yourself a, I don't know if you can take a, take a week off and start digging in. Okay. If you can't do that, well, just get an hour here or there, you know, but find a way to get the space and not just consume this because that's really antithetical to the whole process and to the whole theory. And I feel like a lot of times, like when I hear from people about what I put out there and stuff, there's the temptation to consume it all real fast, especially if you have overexcitabilities and giftedness, you know, you can be like, okay, just consume it all very fast. And then just keep going on in your life and hope that something magical happens because you consumed it. And that's just absolutely not how this works. It really is an intentional, slow, involved and intimate process, like self-intimate process. Yes. And I'm glad that you said that because a lot of people tell me that they like binge the podcast. And honestly, I think that the best thing to do is like listen to an episode and then like write out your thoughts about it. Give yourself time to process what's being said. I worry about when people like take in too much, like you just said. I mean, you have to give yourself the time and space to process Processing is really important. Even if you're a quick person, know that you need time to digest. 
And you need context again to digest. You need people yeah. to be able to talk about these things with. You won't just sit in your room alone for five years and figure this all out. It will start to happen through conversations. So people could have sessions with you, Chris. People could have sessions mm-hmm. with one of the coaches in Intergifted. I mentioned it in the last episode that our coach Fabienne Biedler does biography coaching, which goes very hand in hand with auto psychotherapy. <laughs> There are all kinds of resources out there. Like you said, there's the study group and there's going to be the Dabrowski Center. I mean, there is the Dabrowski Center, but it's going to be <laughs> right. growing and giving more resources as we go. Yeah, there's there's a lot to be done. It's a whole shift of how you approach yourself and who you are and what your life project is, basically. Totally. It's really like a life altering thing. And yeah. so, you know, be prepared and be prepared for the people in your life to you know, kind of chafe at it at first, or, you know, maybe not have the responses that you wish you would have from them. But again, like trust your path and do what you need to do. And the other people in your life will get on board, you know, eventually. And if they don't, then maybe rethink that relationship. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh Well, thank you so much for being here with me, for having this conversation, for, you know, sharing so honestly and openly your story. These conversations are gold for people who, just like you and me, have emotional overexcitability and really want to know people at their core. And it's so hard to find these kinds of conversations. It is. Well, thank you so much for having me. I am just honored to be here. And I am grateful for this opportunity to share my story. I mean, when I was like in my 20s and suffering, I needed to hear this kind of stuff. And so I'm so grateful for the opportunity to share and hope that the people who need to hear it are hearing it. Yeah. Well, to all our listeners, thanks for joining us today and stay tuned. I'll have another episode whenever I do. Thanks, Chris. Thank you.